So today we come to part two of our consideration of Psalm 9. I can't rehearse everything that we considered in the study of verses 1 through 12. What I will do is give a little bit of a brief overview, highlighting some of the things that we considered a couple of weeks ago, and then we'll make our way into the text for this morning, beginning at verse 13. Now, the first thing I want to call your attention to is verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, remember what we saw from David. We saw the spirit-compelled resolutions. We saw commitment to wholehearted praising, commitment to bold and comprehensive declarations, God-centered rejoicing, and God-directed singing. And one of the things I noted two weeks ago is what makes verses 1 and 2 particularly instructive, to me at least, is seeing them within the context of verse 13. David is making these commitments to praise God. And you see these I will statements. We see multiple I will statements in verses 1 and 2. Four times we see I will. And it's coming within a context in which David has enemies that are causing him trouble yet again. You see that in verse 13, which we will get to shortly. But just by way of reminder, I think this is instructive for us. Because we see David first making a commitment to praise God in the situation that he's in. And I know at least for me, a lot of times it could be easier to just keep petitioning God when you're in the muck and the mire. And then you save the praising for when you're pulled out of the muck and the mire and you're placed upon the rock. And then you have a new song put in your mouth to use language from Psalm 40. And you're like, okay, I was petitioning in the mire, but now that I'm out of it, I will praise. And that's good and that's fine. But we should also be instructed to commit ourselves to praise God when we're in whatever mire we find ourselves in. That's not only instructive in light of what David does here, it's instructive in light of Acts 16 where we see Paul and Silas essentially do that when they're sitting in the midst of a prison. So you look at these I will statements. I'll just call your attention to them briefly. We see David's spirit-inspired resolve here. He says, I will. He's communicating this commitment to praise God. He's communicating that he's going to praise God with a whole heart. That's the second thing that we called attention to a couple weeks ago. He didn't want to give God half-hearted praising. He committed by the grace of God to give God wholehearted praising. And one of the ways that we can avoid giving God half-hearted praising is knowing our proclivity to do so. And if you know that you're kind of prone to do that, being on the alert for it is one way to avoid it. Third thing that we noted a couple of weeks ago is David's commitment to declare God's marvelous works. He wanted to let other people know about what God had done. And that's something I think is a great takeaway for us to be aware of. He said he would rejoice in God, and he also said that he would sing. And remember, this wasn't just David's song, this was Israel's song. So Israel, the people of God, were saying the same things. These weren't just David's personal commitments. They were inspired by the Spirit of God, so they might be the commitments that were made by the grace of God, by the people of God. So that was verses 1 and 2. And then as we went through the psalm, and we saw this a little bit more in verses 3 through 6, David gives what appears to be a kind of paradigm. David had seen in his life his enemies be defeated. Now now there's a question mark there. Is David saying what he's saying in verses 3 through 6 in a prophetic, perfect way, where he's anticipating what God will do in the future? Or is he looking back to what God has done in his life and the way in which God has delivered him in previous situations? and expecting that God will do it yet again. That appears to be the idea that's going on in verses 3 through 6. When you look at verses 7 and 8, there's a contrast between the enemies of God and the nations and the Lord. Whereas the enemies of God and whether nations, uh, they come and they go, they come and they, they rise and they fall, but the Lord, verse 7 says, shall endure forever. 
So his kingdom is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He has prepared his throne for judgment. And now we see David clearly looking towards the future. Paul picks up on this in Acts 17. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall judge the world in righteousness. And even as the Father created through his word and created through his Son, so God will judge the world through his Son. And we see that clearly communicated in Acts 17. So in verses 7 and 8, we saw that God is the just judge, but he's also a refuge. It's not just that he's a just judge. In verses 9 through 12, we see that he's a refuge for the oppressed. That word for refuge there speaks of a kind of hill fort, a fortress, a a kind of great stronghold that you would run into for safety. So if you were to imagine what it looks like to trust God, it looks like running to him as though you're running to a fortress one in whom you're placing trust for ultimate safety. He's the one that doesn't forsake his people. And he's also the one in verse 12 that David says, avenges blood. Um, he does not forget the cry of the humble. And we left off last, last time, two weeks ago, saying the Psalms, even in the Old Testament, doesn't hide from the reality that God's people have been persecuted. You know, when Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that he and other saints were accounted like sheep to the slaughter who were killed all day long. That's drawing from the Psalter. See, the people of God even knew what it was like in the Old Testament time to suffer under the hands of ungodly and unrighteous people. Granted, there were a lot of those who were delivered. Elijah was delivered and David was delivered. But there were a lot of people that were oppressed by ungodly, tyrannical people, even in the Old Testament. And the Scripture doesn't hide from that. The Scripture does not hide from the fact that it will appear at times that evil is winning, like evil is winning. But as we see in verse 12, very clearly the Scripture says, When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. The scripture is saying that there will come a time when things are made right. And that brings us into verse 13. Reading verses 13 and 14 where we are today, David says, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation. So first, I want you to see what David's doing. In light of verse 12, in light of David recalling that God is the one who remembers the cry of the humble, he doesn't forget the cry of the humble, what does David do? He cries out to God. It's as though David is applying the same spirit-inspired instruction that he's writing. God doesn't forget the cry of the humble, so David's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cry out to God right now. And that gives you a little bit more of insight, a little bit more of an insight into what David's situation was. So he cries out to the Lord and he says, have mercy on me, O Lord. He took the truth about who God is and he applied it personally. And that is so instructive for us. He wanted God to consider him. He said, consider my trouble from those who hate me. The Hebrew word for consider here is ra'ah. It's most often translated as to see, or a verb form to see. 
So what is David asking here? He's asking for Yahweh to consider, to see his situation, and the implication clearly goes beyond simply sight or simply consideration. He's asking for God's help and deliverance from those who hate him. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. But he's appealing in this genuine way, this kind of emotional way to say, consider, see this, see what's going on. You are the just God. You're the one who's seated on the throne. See all this, Lord. And the implication is when you do see this, I'm asking you to deliver me. Have mercy on me. David also had personal experience with the God who remembers the cry of the humble. He said, you who lift me up from the gates of death. Here, entering into death, i.e. dying, is pictured as walking through gates. David knew what it was like to feel as though he was at death's door, or sticking to the text, death's gate. But God was the one who time and time again kept him from going through those gates. So he would feel like he's right there, like he's laid at the door of death, as it were. But he knew God to be the one who preserved him from death's door. Now, I think it's helpful for us, just by way of encouragement to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in here, Do not spend an inordinate inordinate amount of time contemplating walking through the gates of death. (laughs) Because you can do that. And you can think of like, what's it going to be like when I walk through the gates of death? And you can imagine different scenarios in which you might walk through the gates of death. And let me just encourage you. It is a prudent thing to know that our days are numbered and to know that our life is like a vapor. There's wisdom in knowing that our life is, is but a breath in comparison with eternity. There's wisdom in that. But for the people of God, rather than just imagining yourself at death's door and at death's gate, you would do well to imagine a little bit more, perhaps, what those gates are like that you're going to see when you cross over Jordan, when you walk through the gates of death. Because there are beautiful gates that are on the other side of this life. They're in the New Jerusalem. They're described in Revelation 21. There's 12 of them. There's three in the north, three in the east, three in the west, three in the south. Beautiful picture in Revelation 12. It's brief, but it's a beautiful picture. These 12 gates bear the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 angels that are described as being stationed at each one of those gates. So what I'm saying is that for the child of God, you can imagine walking through death's gate, and you can imagine what lies on the other side of that. Because you know that whatever lies before you in this life, it's bound to get better ultimately. (laughs) So you know that ultimately what awaits you is something great. And if you do end up walking through the gates of death, David was delivered from the gates of death so many times until that time when he wasn't. But he wasn't going to suffer at the hands of his cruel enemies. At least that was God's plan for David's life. He would pass on from this life in a different way. But you don't have to spend your life imagining what it's going to be like when you just walk through death's gate without imagining what's on the other side of that. Namely, for instance, the gates that surround the new Jerusalem. And you don't stop there, of course. You don't stop with just imagining the 12 angels that are there. You don't imagine just the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. You keep going and you imagine seeing the lamb who was slain for your sins. You imagine the beatific vision that's described in a place like Matthew 5. So one day, the people of God will be lifted from death's gate, and it will be passed through it. They will pass through it to see the beauty of the gates of the heavenly city. Now back to the text. The reason for this deliverance, at least the reason why David is pursuing it, is found in verse 14, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates 
of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. A few things to note here, okay? Look at the text, verse 14. David says, that I may tell of your praise. I want to call your attention to that phrase there, your praise. And then he says that he will rejoice in your salvation, talking to God. So when he says your praise, it's kind of an interesting way of framing the language here. Your praise. What does that mean? It means this praise that belongs to God. I'm asking you to help me because I want to communicate praise that belongs to you. In other words, for the deliverance that you've wrought in my life, there is praise that belongs to you. It's your praise. It's coming from my mouth, and in a sense, it's my praise, but it's really praise that belongs to you. It's your praise. And oh, how God deserves ongoing praise from us, seeing that he has delivered us from eternal wrath through his Son. We could say for the rest of our lives and to all of eternity, there is praise that belongs to God. I want to give you your praise for your ultimate act of deliverance in my life. And then he says, I will rejoice in your salvation. Well, same kind of idea here, a little, little bit of a different nuance, but it's the salvation that God gives. It's the salvation that he brings. This wasn't David's own salvation. This wasn't the salvation of David's mighty men or David's own ingenuity. This was God's salvation. So David is asking, and watch this, this is the motivation. Have mercy on me, you who lift me up from the gates of death. Have mercy on me. This is the reason why. I want to declare the praise that belongs to you. That's why I want you to deliver me. I want to communicate my praise publicly. I want to rejoice in you publicly, God of my salvation. Now, I think this is a good check for all of us. When you're asking for God to deliver you from whatever you're asking God to deliver you from, why are you asking for that deliverance? Because I want to get out of the situation. (laughs) Because I don't want to feel the way I felt. Because I don't want to go through what I'm going through. Well, I want to encourage you, even though those things may be legitimate, You want to have a reason that's far greater than those things. And the reason that you want to have is so that God might get glory in one way or another, so that you might praise him publicly. Again, this wasn't intended just to be uh, Israel's, uh, David's song. This was intended to be Israel's song. So the people of God, the people of Israel, were to seek deliverance so that they might issue forth more praise to God. And again, I just think for us, for me, It's a good question to ask myself, why do I, why do you want deliverance from whatever you want deliverance from? It's not that lesser reasons are intrinsically sinful, but our primary desire is to be for God to be glorified. And David models that so well here. Now, as we get ready to go into verses 15 and 16, interestingly, the verb tenses are in perfect tenses. It seems, and this seems to be the consensus of at least quite a few commentators that that I've read with respect to these passages, that these are prophetic perfects. That David is looking ahead at the judgment that God will have rendered upon the nations. But note, however, it's also possible that David is looking back once again to see how God has acted in history, and that pattern in the past paves the way for the expectation of what God will do in the future. So you've got certain tenses used here, different tenses used in verse 17. But let's look at the text and we'll see what we could um, gather from it. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Meditation, Selah. Now one of the things that you may know if you're familiar with um, basketball 
is that sometimes if you have like one player who's really good and he's playing you know, against adversaries that he knows he can beat, there might be something when it comes down to point game, when there's just one more basket that's needed to win a game, where the person who has the ball and has dominated the opposition might say something like this to the opponent, how do you want to lose? So they're dribbling the ball and saying, like, how do you want it? Do you want me to dribble to the rim? Do you want me to kind of step back and do like a jump shot? Do you want me to dribble and do like a pull-up shot? And the idea is that this soon-to-be-victorious player is basically saying, there are so many ways that I could defeat you. It's an easy thing. How do you want to lose? That's kind of the sense I get when I read this text. Because as it relates to God's enemies, there's so many ways in which God can defeat his enemies. And we just see one of them here. While there are so many means at God's disposal to defeat his enemies, one of the ones that he so often uses is the enemy's own means of trying to defeat the people of God. And he uses those means as a means to bring about their own defeat. Look at verse 15. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. So the metaphors describe the way in which that these nations, and and likely this has most immediate application to the surrounding nations that had opposed David at one time or another. That would be an immediate application of this, we would think. So they set the traps, and it doesn't matter how well that they plan to set the traps. They dig the pit, but only to fall into it themselves. The nations hid the net, and it's it's used by God to catch their own feet. So note, it doesn't matter how well dug out the pit was or how carefully laid the trap was. Yahweh purposed to thwart them through their own schemes. It's interesting. One of the many reasons why those who pursue an unrepentant wickedness should fear to do so is because God, the God of the universe, may use the wickedness of the wicked to be their very own undoing. If there's a reason to desist in unrepentant wickedness, especially in light of this context when other people are on the end of that wickedness and suffering on the other end of that, one of the reasons to stop and desist is the fear that Almighty God might use that very wickedness to be their own undoing. In verse 16, the scripture says, The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. I see this in at least two ways. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. One of the ways I think that's to be understood here is in this regard. God is the one. Who, who, who but God can do this? God is the one who could use the proverbial punches that the enemy throws to make sure that they hit themselves in the process. Could you imagine that? Just imagine. As I was driving here this morning, I was just imagining being in like a boxing ring facing an opponent who had the capability of making sure that every punch that I threw landed on myself. How do you beat such an opponent? What do you do? You, do you swing harder? No, you don't swing harder because if you swing harder, you're going to be on the receiving end of that hard swing. So what do you do? You surrender. Because the best way you could win is by escaping. Because the more you fight, the more you're ensuring your own destruction. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. And one of the takeaways, I think, and I'll show you something that I think is more contextual, but one of the ways I think in the context here is that he is known by being able to execute judgment in this way. He's the one who could take Haman's gallows and make sure Haman hangs on his gallows. He's the one who could take Daniel's persecutors and make sure that they end up being thrown in the pit of lions that they prepared for Daniel to die in, but he didn't die in. He was rescued nonetheless. 
See, only God could do this. Only God could take the swings of an enemy and make sure that they come back around and they land and they boomerang right back on the enemy. Who but God could do that? The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. Now, I think contextually what that's saying here, so that's something that I think, I think that's there, I think that's in the text, but I think something that's there contextually rather clearly is that a mark of God's holiness is the justice that he ultimately executes. And you see little examples of this, tokens of this in history, when God brings judgment on a Judah, on Israel, on Babylon, and so on. So you see tokens of this, that God is known by the judgment that he executes. That these nations that persist in wickedness, they can only go so far. And then ultimately, they come down. And that's the pattern that we see in history that will ultimately be manifested in the coming judgment when all the nations are judged. The Lord is known by the judgment that he executes. So he ultimately is the God who punishes the wicked. He punishes the wicked. He's the one who ultimately sets things right. He is the righteous judge. He judges the wicked and he delivers his people. Now, I think that's something, if you want to take away, and you say, okay, what can I do after this sermon to apply this sermon? Think about that. If you leave here today and you think about that, the Lord is known by the judgment he executes and you just think about his justice in punishing the wicked, or think about the amazing wisdom and sovereignty and the way he can do it, I think you're applying the text. Why? Because the word here, meditation, implies that, musing upon, thinking about what you had just read. Now, there likely was some sort of musical connotation within that context, as is uh, suggested by the word selah that follows, which may have been a kind of musical pause or a call for an interlude or so on. But if you wanted to apply this message, think about the Lord being known by the judgment he executes. That brings us to verses 17 and 18. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. So as the psalm approaches its end, David considered the end of the wicked. And we would do well to ask the question, what is meant by the phrase, the wicked shall be turned into hell? Now the word for hell is that Hebrew word sheol. It's a word that means grave or place of the dead. The word for turned here can connote that they were, the enemies, the wicked, um, they were on a certain pathway, but they were turned off of their course, perhaps even turned back in retreat, if you look at Psalm chapter 9, verse 3, and they were turned into Sheol. Also note, just a little bit more of noting the text and kind of, we'll kind of get around the big idea here, the word for turned could be rendered as returned. So it could be rendered as returned, and thus the connection between returning to the dust Right to use language from Genesis chapter 3. But the scripture here does not say that he's returning, the wicked are returning to the dust. It says they will be turned into or returned to Sheol, the place of the dead. This apparently speaks of the abrupt end that will come to the wicked. Some suggest that there are hints here of punishment beyond the grave. That's possible. That's not expounded upon in Old Testament texts Um, definitely not to the degree that it is in New Testament text, but there is the idea in like Daniel 12 of being resurrected to everlasting shame and those ideas. But this likely speaks here of the, uh, the death 
the abrupt death that would happen to the wicked. And then ultimately we know in light of New Testament texts that after this death, there lies the second death. There's the upcoming casting into the lake of fire that comes. The big idea here appears to be this. David is appearing to consider the coming retribution of God upon the wicked with a particular view to them paying for their crimes against the needy. More about that in a moment. If you're looking for a further description of who the wicked are, and you say, okay, the wicked are described here, who are the wicked? Well, in typical Hebrew poetry, you could look at the second line of a verse oftentimes to have the first line expounded upon. So the wicked here are the nations that forget God. The nations that forget God. This description is a telling one. It's rather vivid. It describes the idea of these people not having God in their thoughts, just kind of going about life, not being concerned about God's precepts, not really caring about his warnings of judgment, no care about his promises of blessing, and so on. God sustains these people, yet they forget him. He provides for them, yet they forget him. They are dependent upon him, yet they forget him. It's like Romans 1 states, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, Romans 1.21. Rather, they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, that's Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, Romans chapter 1, verse 28. This verse is a reminder that not only do individuals forget God, and we could see that in Psalm 50, verse 22, but as Spurgeon noted, there are whole nations of such that forget God. So in light of just reading that, what's a takeaway for us? If we were doing family devotional right now, if I was with my family, and something that we do sometimes is we see what the text is saying. That's what the text is saying right there. I think that's a good and fair exposition of the text. But then one of the things that we do in family devotional is we say, okay, how could that apply to us? And then I think one of the things that we would say here as a church is that we would say we don't want to be those that forget God. If the unregenerated are described as those who don't like to retain God in their knowledge, Romans 1.28, well, how do we, by the grace of God, grow in the grace of being in the opposite? Then we love to retain God in our knowledge. No matter what you're doing, I encourage you, son or daughter of God, keep God in your mind. Don't be prone to forget God. Don't, don't, don't let a few days go by and be like, well, I just didn't even think of God. I didn't think of the Word. I didn't think of praying to Him. Don't let that happen to you. That's a characteristic description of the wicked. That's not who you are. God is in none of their thoughts. Well, by the grace of God, God will be continuously in your thoughts. And you'll have so much to thank Him for. You'll have so many petitions to offer Him. You'll have so much to praise Him for. You'll have so much to muse upon and rejoice in. Don't forget God. There are so many blessings that come with such remembrance as well. Conversely, here we have a beautiful contrast. So that describes the the nations that forget God, who will be turned into Sheol, the place of the dead, and then ultimately, we know, in light of New Testament teaching especially, to the lake of fire, the second death. But conversely, there's a beautiful contrast. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. So see this here. The wicked may forget God, but God does not forget the needy. That is a contrast we are meant to see. The wicked may forget God. God does not forget the needy. What does that suggest, though? It suggests that it may look like God forgets the needy. It may look like, when you think about Christians who are persecuted in different parts of the world, when you think about Christians who have watched their families be slain, it can look like God has forgotten them. It can look like those Christians have been forgotten by God, but he doesn't forget the needy. He doesn't. The wicked may forget God, but God doesn't forget the needy. Again, to kind of exegete the verse, the needy of the first half of verse 18 are the poor of the second half of verse 18. 
I do think the root words here, and this isn't always the case, but sometimes I think it's helpful. The root words of the Hebrew words that are used here for the term needy and the poor, I think if you look at those root words, maybe we get a little bit more idea of what these people were going through, perhaps. Um, Alec Mortier notes, for instance, that the Hebrew word for needy, it, it does mean, as, as if you would look it up, you would see it means to be in want or to be needy or poor, but it comes from a Hebrew word that means to be willing. As he notes here, used in a bad sense. Those who can be pushed around, the pliable, vulnerable to pressure from stronger interests. And in like manner, when you look at the word for poor, and you look at the root word for that, the root word for that speaks of being bowed down or afflicted, i.e. one who is made low through oppression. So David appears to be talking about how the people of God were suffering, even in David's day, and we see examples of this in First and Second Samuel, even in David's day, they were suffering at the hands of tyrannical and unrighteous rulers. They were vulnerable, they were taken advantage of, they were, in some cases, slaughtered, in some cases, killed. The fact that this is stated connotes the idea that it may look as though the needy and the poor are forgotten. And note here within the context here, you would think the needy and poor as being those who are the afflicted by the wicked, yes, and also those who are trusting in Yahweh. New Testament counterpart would be trusting in the Son of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Their expectation may be disappointed for a time, but it will not perish forever. And that leads David to appeal and pray in verses 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. So David, as so often is the case in the Psalms, he expresses great assurance in God's judgment while actively praying about the matter. Do you know? You see that? You go through this psalm and it's like he is super confident that God will judge the wicked. There's no doubt about that. But yet, he still prays that God would do just that. And that's the balance. If you ever wonder, well, what's the balance between you know, having a theology of the sovereignty of God and interceding in prayer? There it is right there. You know that God is sovereign and you pray to that sovereign God. Knowing that God is sovereign does not excuse prayerlessness. No, 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 no. Knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that God will judge the wicked, should fuel prayerfulness. And that's what we see with David here. David didn't say, well, God's sovereign. He's sitting on the throne. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. All I'm going to do now is let go and let God. No, you don't have to let go and let God do anything. God will do what God is going to do. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases Him. But our prerogative is to pray to the sovereign God of the universe. That's our prerogative. Jesus told us, ask, seek, and knock. James wrote, you have not because you ask not. Paul wrote that we are to offer our petitions with thanksgiving. Paul wrote that we are to pray without ceasing. Our prerogative is to pray in light of God's sovereignty, not to excuse prayerlessness in light of God's sovereignty. He says, arise, O Lord. And again, it's that language that appears to be him kind of appealing for God to take his seat on the throne of judgment, as it were. As though, it's, it, God, it looks like you're, you're sitting down and you're idly watching what's been going on, as it were. God, I'm asking you to arise. Take your place on the throne of judgment, as it were. 
Do not let man prevail. Arise and put a stop to this, is essentially what David is saying. Do not let man prevail. Manifest, exert, as it were, your power and authority. Note that the word for man here, according to uh, Derek Kidner, in both of these verses, is one which tends to emphasize his frailty. So the particular Hebrew word that's used here is a word that connotes the frailty of man. You know, when you think about even what we're seeing in our day, when you're seeing what, di- what different governments are doing, uh, different leaders, whether it's in our land or across this world, it can look like such ones have such power. Well, I have the power to do this or the power to do that, the power to lock you down or lock you up or to do this or that. And it can look like they have such power But it's a good reminder here that when compared with God's power and authority, every one of us, and even the most powerful of men, are but frail human beings who are dependent upon Almighty God for their very existence and next breath. When David prayed, let the nations be judged in your sight, put them in fear, O Lord. Yes, he was praying against the success of evil and the manifestation of God's righteousness against sin, and wrath against sin. But he was, per the text, praying to the end that the nations might be humbled and instructed. That the nations may know themselves to be just men. So put them in fear. May there just be this terror that strikes them. We, we can think of ourselves praying that, praying that way and saying, Lord, may the fear of the Lord come upon them. May they know themselves to be just men. May they humble themselves. That they themselves are not in the seat of ultimate authority, but under ultimate authority. There's a timely verse, I think, for the world right now. Some places more than others. May they forsake the mindset of the man of sin, as described in 2 Thessalonians, who exalts himself over everything that is called God and worship. God can use his enemies, uh, God can use a whole bunch of things to cause his enemies to be panic-stricken. If you want an example, you can look at 2 Kings chapter 7. Verses uh, 6 through 7, he caused the Syrians to hear the noises of chariots, horses, and a great army, which led to fear and flight. So when David says here, put them in terror, O Lord, God could do that in a whole bunch of ways. But the problem was that they were without holy fear. They had an unholy boldness, even as many in our day have. When wicked men have power, they can often fancy themselves as majestic magistrates, as opposed to the language used in this text. Mere men. The greatest magistrate is but a mere man or a mere woman. Not one in ultimate authority, but one who is under ultimate authority. So the fear that David prayed that they would have, I think it could be just a terror-strickenness that leads them to be humbled. The fear of the Lord that begins with wisdom, that goes hand-in-hand with humility. Proverbs 22, verse 4. Not realizing that one is a mere man goes hand in hand with the absence of the fear of the Lord. I close with saying this. If we were just to say, what can we learn from David right here? I think if you go back to the message from two weeks ago, there's so much to learn in this psalm. That's why it took two weeks to cover. There's so many takeaways for us as Christians. But right here, verses 19 and 20, what can we learn from David here? And I would say this. New Testament saints are not without the weapon that David employed in these verses. If the weapon of prayer seems strong in David's hands, 
right? Apparently it does. David's thinking, you know, to handle all of these men and these nations, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray to Yahweh. Do you not think it's strong in your hands? Has your theology of God's sovereignty led you to have such little hope in your own petitioning of the God of heaven and earth? And you have a wrong view of God's sovereignty. If God's sovereignty doesn't fuel your hopefulness in prayer, not your attempt to manipulate the God of the universe, oh no, no, but if it doesn't fuel your hopefulness in prayer, but it kind of fuels a kind of despondency, a kind of hopelessness, you have a bad understanding of God's sovereignty and how God uses the prayers of his people. David, you could look in this psalm alone as an example, he understood God's sovereignty in its past, present, and future sense. And yet he's calling on God, arise, arise, do not let man prevail. So I think a takeaway for us is you may not know the will of God in a specific matter, but do you doubt his power? Do you think that he will indefinitely allow the wicked schemes of men and nations to go unchecked? I can assure you that he won't. And I can assure you that when they come to a halt and when they collapse in one way or another, God will have used the prayers of his people in part of his sovereign plan of bringing that about. You can look at the little horn of Daniel, and he may prevail for a time against the saints, but it's only for a time. You may look at the nations that wage war against the Lamb, but their waging of war is quickly put to an end. And the fear that is prayed for in a moment like this, in this text, will be realized in a place like Revelation chapter 18, when all of a sudden the fear of God comes upon people, and they know there's nowhere to escape. You can see that kind of idea in like Revelation 6 as well, the wrath of the Lamb, a kind of terror-strickenness. So I encourage you, sons and daughters of the living God, to pray. Pray. Perhaps pray more than you ever have before. Pray. As you see the day drawing nearer, pray. Do not let your heart grow cold. Keep your lamps burning, as it were, trimmed with oil. The Holy Spirit, of course, preserving you and helping you. And pray. Pray that unrepentant men and women will fear the prospect, to use language from Revelation 14.10, of drinking the wine of the anger of God, having been mixed undiluted in the cup of His wrath. Pray that they will know that the unrepentant, to use language again from Revelation 14, will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Pray. Pray. And in your praying, not only for these things, you'll be by the grace of God humbling yourself and drawing near to Christ. Because you know, as you've been warned many times, that because of the increase in lawlessness and sin in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. And being in a place of prayer, you're not only praying for God's judgment upon the nations, you're not only praying that men and women would turn from their sinfulness and turn to Christ, but you're also warming your own heart by the fires of who Jesus Christ is. And you're making sure that your own heart stays warm in a day when men and women's hearts will grow colder and colder. The last thing I'll say, quick little... Uh, pastoral parenthetical note. If you become increasingly intoxicated by what's going on in this world, and if you find yourself meditating on the evil and wickedness of men, don't be surprised if that's a means towards your love, a means towards the end of your love growing cold. For unrepentant men and women, maybe even becoming kind of a wedge because you're so engrossed in that that you're not thinking about the great grace and the glory of God, keep your heart warm. And if you go to that place of prayer, 
the Word of God right in front of you. God speaking to you not only publicly through the text at a time like this, but personally in your own prayer closet or by your own bed in your own kitchen, wherever it might be. It's a way to just preserve, as it were, your own sensitivity to the Word of Christ. You are His sheep. You're going to hear His voice. But by the grace of God, put yourself in the position so that you could hear His voice personally and speak back your voice to Him personally as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that as we go through this psalm, we have seen so many ways in which David, while praying for Your judgment and and looking at the ways in which You had in the past delivered the righteous from the wicked and looking to the ways in which You would do it in his life and in the future, I thank You for the model here and the way in which that he wasn't engrossed with the nations. But there's a sense in which he was so engrossed with You He committed Himself by Your grace to praise You, to worship You wholeheartedly, to declare who You were in Your marvelous works. He said that those who know Your name will put their trust in You. And I pray, Heavenly Father, for every person in this building, Lord, that they would, by the grace of God, draw near to You, that they would know Your name better, as it were, and that they would trust in You even more. And that they would do what David said he would do, Lord. That they will and that we will, by your grace, give you wholehearted worship, worship. Declare your marvelous works. That we will be engrossed with you. That we will have great confidence. Apparently, David had such great spirit-wrought confidence that even though he could see the needy and the poor from a human standpoint forgotten, even though he could see bloodshed that he knew would be remembered at a future time, he nonetheless knew that you were sovereign, that you sat on your throne, that you judge righteously. And so, Father, I pray for us as a congregation that you might help us walk in his footsteps, Lord, and most ultimately in the footsteps of your Son, that we might have our eyes so set upon you that we might live like loving lights in this world, those who pray for the repentance of the unrepentant, In our own hearts, Lord, that we are sensitive to repent of what you would have us to repent of. And that as those who have been forgiven by the blood of Christ, that we just look to you with assurance that one day that the same Jesus who came and died for our sins will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Father, may the faith of your people grow even stronger in these days. And may our love burn all the more brightly, Lord. I pray that among this assembly, Lord, that in these days, that there would be, from your vantage point, just a noticeable growth in God-granted love, Lord. And may there be growth in God-oriented, God-directed trust and faith, Lord. We love you, and we pray these things for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.